Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. And today we are talking about Charles Tilley's theory uh, that states are essentially organized crime. Um, if you've never heard of Charles Tilley before, he lived 1929 to 2008, so relatively modern thinker. He was one of the most prominent sociologists and political scientists and historian of the 20th century. He was one of the, he's really touted as one of the founders of like 21st century sociology and social analysis. And he did most of his work that he's well known for in the analysis of states and the formation of states and the history of states, et cetera, and also in revolution and social movement. Um, in fact, we use his work in our classes on revolution and social change and so forth. He's one of the most prominent thinkers there. Um, he was a professor of social sciences at, I think, Michigan and Harvard, no, Columbia, et cetera. Anyways, one of the most well-known, I always want to say famous, one of the most famous sociologists, but like there's no such thing as a famous sociologist, so let's not be crazy. But as far as scholars go, he's one of the uh, most well-known political scientists and political sociologists of the 20th century. Um, he talks about his theories today, and I'll put these in the description, uh, mainly in two of his works, though he also mentions them elsewhere. But the first is a chapter that he wrote titled War Making and State Making as Organized Crime. And that was in an edited volume called Bringing the State Back In that we actually use in our class on revolution. One of the editors there was Ida Scott Hall, who's really famous too in uh, history and political science. And then he himself later wrote a book, five years later published a book titled Coercion, Capital, and European States, AD 990 to 1900, where he then spends a large portion of the book expanding upon um, this theory. But his main thesis here is, you know, he sets out, which many scholars have over time, uh, since like, I don't even know, Machiavelli, right? Trying to answer how did states come into being, how do they function, and so forth. And so that's what he's, you know, after here, and he provides, you know, a relatively modern take on uh, sort of how this happens. And his main thesis is that states come about as a result of war, uh, period. And then the way that they function and their characteristics are a result of the fact that they have originated in war making. Now, he writes this in contrast to the, to the sort of, I don't know, quote unquote, romantic theories of the state, you know, like Hobbes' commonwealth and Locke's, you know, ruling by the consent, consent of the people and Rousseau's social contract theory, et cetera, you know, and a lot of modern scholars at the time of Tilly's writing and still to this day emphasize the role of economics and specifically capitalism. And they argue that modern nation states were born out of the, you know, capitalistic economic activity. Um, and Tilly disagrees. Not that he completely discounts economics, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but he says that, you know, the, the, the origination of states is out of war activities. He has a good quote, I think, that kind of centers, you know, gives context and centers his theory. He says, quote, a portrait of war makers and state makers as coercive and self-seeking entrepreneurs bears a far greater resemblance to the facts than do its chief alternatives. The idea of a social contract, the idea of an open market in which operators of armies and states offer services to willing consumers, the idea of a society whose shared norms and expectations call forth a certain kind of government. Anything to add yet? 
No, I mean, the, the theory itself definitely makes a lot of sense. Obviously, when we do various histories that we talk about colonial projects or revolutionary projects or any of the other things we've talked about on this channel or in our courses, each and every one of them does start starts from a point of violence, right? And creating that monopoly on violence. We talked about Weber before. I know you've talked about Weber before on this channel. So um, more or less, I would agree with Tilly's main thesis thus far. Let's dig in a little bit further and see where he's going with this. So this is a quote that kind of sums up his connection to organized crime and state making. He says, if protection rackets represent organized crime at its smoothest, then war risking and state making quintessential protection rackets with the advantage of legitimacy qualify as our largest example of organized crime. So he lays it out in one sentence there. Uh, well, I think let's start with his definition of a state, which he provides here related to this theory. He says national states are, quote, relatively centralized, differentiated organizations, the officials of which more or less successfully claim control over the chief concentrated means of violence within a population inhabiting a large contiguous territory. So very clearly, like Jared said, you know, we talked about Weber's definition of a state many times in many different episodes and contexts on this channel, you know, and Weber's definition is that the state is the entity that claims a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in a territory. So completely linked to violence. Tilly gives credit there and says, yes, essentially I agree with Weber's theory, which is by far the most widely used theory of a state. But Tilly actually argues that it wasn't until relatively, you know, in the scope of human history where Weber's definition actually applied correctly, uh, that states, did actually centralize and monopolize the use of violence. Of course, before then we wouldn't have called them the state and so forth, but that's Tilly's project is explaining this history of how this came into being. You know, Weber is not a historian. He, you know, really was a, whatever, a theorist. Uh, so Tilly fills in sort of the history, mainly in the book that I mentioned um, that he uh, wrote. So, Let's start with how states use their force, right? How do they use their monopoly on violence? And this gets at the heart of Tilly's theory. Now, if you're looking at this, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're seeing a diagram here from one of Tilly's uh, articles. If you're listening to this as a podcast, I can't even begin to describe this diagram uh, in any way that would make sense. So I'll put it on the website and uh, you can check out the YouTube if you're curious or download the, the article. I'll post a link in the description. Um, but essentially, it's a diagram that shows war making, extraction, protection, and state making. These are the four things that states do with their violence. And then he talks about the interrelation between these four things, which is what we're going to discuss. So he says, quote, under the general heading of organized violence, the agents of states characteristically carry on four different activities. The first is war making, which he sums up as eliminating or neutralizing their own rivals outside the territories in which they have clear and continuous priority as wielders of force. The second thing is state making, eliminating or neutralizing their rivals inside those territories. Protection, eliminating or neutralizing the enemies of their clients. And I think the term clients here is interesting here. He's talking about the citizens of the state and then, you know, these sort of like tributary states. Extraction, acquiring the means of carrying out the first three activities, war making, state making, and protection. This one is key. So let's go through each of those four specifically and talk about how they're related to one another and what really Tilly is getting at here. So the first is war making. He has a quote here that describes 
you know, also keep in mind, I, I think it's clear by the title of his work, but he's focused here on Western states, you know, uh, specifically. And he actually goes through in detail why Western states are important and how you know, it's also important to talk about colonization, et cetera, but that's not his goal here, right? His goal is the origination of nation states, which very clearly takes place in Europe during the time frame that he is writing. So just know that. Anyways, he says, Europeans followed a standard war-provoking logic. Everyone who controlled substantive coercive means tried to maintain a secure area within which he could enjoy the returns from coercion, plus a fortified buffer zone, possibly run at a loss to protect the secure area. Police or their equivalent deployed force in the secure area, while armies patrolled the buffer zone and ventured outside of it. When that operation succeeded for a while, the buffer zone turned into a secure area, which encouraged the wielder of coercion to acquire a new buffer zone surrounding the old. So long as adjacent, adjacent powers were pursuing the same logic, war resulted. So a few things here. The first, he says, you know, the secure area within which he could enjoy the returns. And he specifically notes that he is intentional, right? The rulers throughout history, uh, typically when we're talking about state making, were male, right? Patriarchal societies. So picture this is... Tilly's model for war making, picture concentric circles, where at the center, there is the secure area that the state uses its force to completely protect. And within that boundary, it houses its citizens, etc. Then outside of that circle is a buffer zone that isn't really territory of the state, but that is close enough to where the state's army can protect that buffer zone as well. Then he says, as long as other states are doing the exact same thing, and they're expanding, they're constantly expanding their secure zone uh, because like he says, you know, if the buffer zone stays protected long enough that the state expands to now encompass the buffer zone. So as long as other, you know, geographical happening in other geographical areas, eventually the buffer zones are going to start overlapping and that's going to create content con conflict as these states are growing next to one another and clearly that's where war comes in. Thoughts on this? So my, my thought immediately went to our argument in the Are You a Peasant um, video that we made, I don't know, a few years back that we use as, mm -hmm. as in our courses regarding the, the construction of state-based pyramids, right? The pyramid mm -hmm. scheme of social organization. And the part that jumped out to me were the ideas of the buffer zone and venturing in and out and how this leads to conflict. We have... Um, he says the police or their equivalent are deployed force in the secure area. So when we talked about this, we brought them up as internal enforcers. Mm -hmm. um, and then the armies patrol that buffer zone that I just mentioned, he says, and ventured outside of it. So those are your external enforcers. Now, we meant enforcement of a specific type of narrative, but that narrative is attached to systems and ways of life that benefit leadership. The thing that is giving me pause is... He's talking about this in a modern sense, and we, or at least I, I don't want to speak for you, would make the argument that this part of the process, this war-making part, is much older than this post-Enlightenment era forming of nation-states, right? We even use the example of, of, of Roman empires or Egyptian city-states or Greek city-states or things along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if he's going to really limit us to Western civilization, we could probably find some Eastern examples as well. But regardless, like that, I think, is the only thing that I'm having a problem with thus far. Again, we need to get through the other three points before we can kind of contextualize this within that specific period that he's talking about. Well, I, I, want, to make, I want to make clear that he's not saying that, you know, Western Europeans in this time period were the only ones doing this war making, right? That's just a central tenet of 
how this process, the state formation goes. You're absolutely right. Clearly the Romans were doing this and so forth. So he's not saying it originated in, you know, Western Europe in the 900s by any means. Right. This war making right. part. Yep. Next is extraction. War making requires the extraction of many kinds of resources, right? So you have to have soldiers, you have to feed the soldiers, you need weapons for the soldiers, supplies, various supplies, and so on, right? And he says, quote, extraction ranges from outright plunder to regular tribute to bureaucratized taxation. So war making requires the extraction of resources. That could be the extraction. I mean, it, it includes the extraction of resources internally, right, from the state. And also it could be, like he says, plundering, et cetera, you know, from outside territories as well. But the bottom line here is that extraction is incredibly, uh, sorry, war making is incredibly expensive and requires all kinds of extraction. So put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in a second. Go ahead. But, yeah, but at the same time, it rationalizes its own existence through like this vicious cycle. We need to extract more resources so that we can wage more, wage more wars. And those wars, of course, lead to the extraction of more resources. And of course, those resources need to be turned into at least war making whatever, facil industries, facilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It also obviously leads to that colonial enterprise, which we're not on yet. I know we're not on that, but that's the idea that yeah. we're going to have to go out and acquire more resources for war making and extractive purposes, whether those extractions are external through conquest or internal through, he says, bureaucratized taxation. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's worse than bureaucratized taxation, the, manif the manifestation of crime and criminal activity and things along those lines and exploitation mm -hmm. of labor and so on and so forth. But I do think like that extraction part's very important. It, even in the ancient examples that I just brought up in the last point I was making, right, much of what you would, um, let's say, pay your soldiers would be, again, the plunder, the booty, whatever it is they would call it, but then that would give them reason to exist and go out and get more because they need to make more, which of course rationalizes more war making and expansion and so on and so forth. Yep. Next, protection. In the simplest form, governments offered its citizens protection, right? And this is what we, this goes back to like, you know, Hobbes and the Commonwealth, et cetera. This is like, people know this, right? Governments exist because they protect the citizens. Now Hobbes, et cetera, Locke, Rousseau say that the citizens consent to this arrangement, right? That they're willing to be citizens and follow the rules, et cetera, and pay taxes and so forth in exchange for, you know, voluntarily in exchange for this protection service. Also, Tilly uh, talks about they also offer protection to any of the communities outside of the territory of the state, right? Whether that's in the buffer zone or beyond, right? And this is the process with how these communities get then enclosed within the state, right? Is by agreeing to become a, a I say protectorate, but to become, right, protected by the state. So we all are familiar with this. I think this is a common way that we think of protection. Uh, and they pay for the protection through, you know, tributary taxation and so forth, supplies and so on. However, and this is key, failure to pay your taxes or your tributes or otherwise, you know, be agreeable to the protector's extraction then is accompanied by consequences, right? You will then bring upon yourself the wrath of the protector. So the clients, right, to use Tilly's term, of the state end up paying the state to be protected from the state, right? So you end up paying for protection from the protector. This is the crux of Tilly's argument where he calls it, it's, you know, it's 
essentially akin to organized crime. It is the racketeering, right? The term that I mentioned Tilly makes use of earlier with the state paying, you know, these people to be protected from the force of the state. Any thoughts on this? So now jumping into the modern era, is he insinuating that that paying from protection from the protector? So let's say you don't, you don't pay your taxes. You don't allow the state to extract from you for their quote unquote protection. You then need protection from their prosecution. Is he talking about uh, lawyers or what? I mean, what is he talking about there? That that I'd like to maybe clear up or what would be an example of that? I think that's the example that that, that came to my mind. Um, but I think he's actually talking about something bigger than that. Do you have an idea of what that might be? I mean, it could be anything, right? The protection from the protector could be, could take many different, you know, could look different in a different examples, especially historically, right? So let's say that you were, I, I'm trying not to use the feudalism, right? Because we're beyond yeah. that at this point. Yeah. I guess not yeah. really, but anyways, let's say you are the controller of a fiefdom that falls within the territory of a monarch, let's say, and you decide that you're no longer going to pay your protection, sorry, further protection from the monarch, well, then you're going to need your own protection when they say, well, too bad, we're going to come collect this with our army, right? Now, in that case, historically, the... You know, <laughs> yeah, or they had their own armies, most of them, right? They were small and ill-equipped, but they had their own, right? Which we'll get to in a second is actually key. So they could protect themselves. Now, they were going to lose to the army of the monarch, but like they could try, right? Nowadays, right, in a more modern manifestation, it's like, you know, if you don't pay your taxes, then you need protection from the protector and it comes in the form of courts, right? Or attorneys and et cetera, right? Tax law and like so forth. And so that's why that's that's where I was trying to get a little bit more definition because right you cannot hire your own mercenary army of knights mm-hmm. or samurai or whatever. Now, I mean, I guess you could, but it it, it probably right. wouldn't go well for anybody if that if you did that if if you had a, a a knight or samurai army waiting outside your home for when the IRS showed up. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's like a John Wick style movie waiting to happen. But anyways, <laughs> yeah. No, and we'll actually get to in just a second that one of the key strategies that states use to, to do this is to prohibit all private armies, right? If that's how one of the steps they use to centralize the use of force within their own hands. But we'll actually get to that in a second. Yeah, so... Well, now, some listener somewhere is, like, really pumping that Second Amendment into their veins. Like, oh, but what about this? But that's mm-hmm. that's that's not the same thing. So, okay. Right. And yeah, we'll actually talk about that in a second, too. So let's put a pin in that for a second. <laughs> so yeah, in the ways you end up needing protector from protection from the protector. So uh, it's easy for us to think about this in like you know medieval times, etc. Like the example I gave of the monarch and so forth. But like we must understand, like we just said twice, this still exists to this day in every modern nation state, right? If you don't pay your taxes, right? If you don't agreeably become, you know, agree to be, have your resources extracted and go to the state, then you face the wrath of the state, right? I mean, there's no other way to put it. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about medieval times or now, it's basically the same. Now, yes, the wrath of the state looks very different, but 
and protections are different, just like we said. We did two but it's still violent, three. even if that violence is not exactly. it's still violence. Like it, incarcerating somebody for something like that's violence. It might not be the same kind of violence of of hanging them from the gallows or what may have happened in prior epics, but it's still violence. It's still states' monopoly on violence, and they're yeah, new. Yeah. And, and attached to that violence, keep in mind, is if you do end up in this system, if we want to use a modern example, this court system attached to that are fees and fines and court costs and things along those lines, which only mean to extract more resources that are given to the state, the state apparatuses in this case, that exert the violence. That's the racketeering. Exactly, 100%. And Tilly actually does, I didn't go into this because we didn't need the detail, but I'll do it now, talks about the two different kinds of violence and force, right? where one is like actual brutal physical violence, like you said, the gallows, et cetera. And the other is removing rights from an individual, et cetera. So let's say what you just said, right? Going to prison or going to gallows, that's still violence and that's still a use of force by the state, right? That we, that is legitimized, right? Through the state making process. Okay, so that's extract, or sorry, protection. State making. So state making happens, you know, like I said earlier, when the circles, the concentric circles are expanding and they are encompassing more and more and more of these communities, right? Then they are developing the physical state by going through that activity and the, the size of the state. The other thing that's really important is that as the territory gets large enough and the war making is becoming like a well-oiled machine, its own industry, you know, Jared used the word industry earlier, and extraction must take place on a massive scale and a wide geographical territory, then modern, what we know now is modern bureaucracy, right? These organized institutions must exist to facilitate this entire thing, right? Especially when we're talking about, you know, once we get to this scale, massive armies, massive internal police forces, and so forth, right? We have to have these state apparatuses that oversee the collection of taxes, the maintenance of the army and the police, right, and so forth. So what we know now is like the modern bureaucratic, institutional, you know, organized, efficient state is a result of this process, right? How cumbersome it is to make war internally and externally, extract resources, and so forth. Any question there? He says, actually, let me do a quote first. Yeah, I have no question. Obviously, military-industrial complex comes to mind. Yeah, um, again, yeah. only exists. It's it only exists to justify its own existence, right? It only mm-hmm. uses its own force to justify its own existence. And of course, increasingly, the militarization of police, uh, specific to the United States, which of course reveals uh, an institution, a state-making institution that is willing to use violence on its own citizens, not protect them per se, but to use violence. Like when you militarize the policing forces and you continue to expand them and glorify them and so on and so forth, like we talked about in the propaganda episodes and things along those lines, that is a group that is willing to use violence and force to rationalize the state-making process at that point in time. So again, this whole Obviously, it's attached to a bunch of narratives where we don't want to necessarily frame it that simply. But if you're on the outside looking in and we are, I don't know, some sort of third party watching this takes place from like the moon or something along those lines. And you see these policing forces, not just in the United States, but throughout the world becoming more and more militarized. Well, what is that? That's showing the state is willing to use all means necessary on their own people. Right. That's 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 the part we're talking about here in statecraft. Well, Tilly's point is, you're absolutely correct, and they're doing that so that they can 
then expand and extract more resources, right? That's the, yeah. the origin of this. That's his argument. Um, right. He says, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, like, who really benefits from a militarized police force? It's not yeah. the people. It's not the vast majority of the everyday working stiff. That that's that's not who is benefiting here. It is those that that control. Now we'll go over, I suppose, to the Marxist lens, the means of production, and in 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 the process of statecraft. That's who benefits. He says, quote, the organization and development of violence themselves account for much of the characteristic structure of European states. So he says, you know, this is sort of the process through which this goes through, right? That the state is born, what we now know as a modern nation state, is born as a result of this interaction between war making, extraction, and protection. And the bureaucracy and the political and economic systems that then came into being were completely to facilitate these other things, this war-making, expansion, you know, extraction, protection, and so forth. So the fact that we have massive bureaucracies to collect taxes, et cetera, right, and legal systems and so forth are a direct result of these other activities. So the characteristics of Western European states and the United States as well, right, is exactly the same, right, is a result of these activities. Let's talk about a little bit the process through which states went to centralize and monopolize the use of force and violence in their hands, because I think it's interesting and it's worth talking about. He said, you know, first they implemented direct rule in every part of their territory. So prior to the centralization of violence and force into the hands of a single state, right, successful rulers who were typically monarchs oversaw a large geographical area, area but didn't have armies themselves that were large enough to dictate what was going on and to control everything within that area. Instead, they would essentially outsource it, right? They would outsource it to small local rulers in different uh, areas. And so the local rulers would control their own population and then essentially a buffer zone around them as well. And they would pay tributary to the monarch for the protection of the large army, right? So, if the small local region was attacked by some outside force, as long as they had been paying their taxes, essentially, then the monarch would deploy the army to protect them, right? However, there's an issue for this long term, Chile argues, is that as long as these rulers exist out there with their own individual armies, they can at any time become an enemy of the ruler, right? And they have their own armies. Now, they usually weren't as big as the, you know, monarch's army. And if they were, that was a problem. Sometimes even if they weren't, that became a problem. Um, but they were always a potential threat, right? Or, and or, I suppose, they could provide aid to a rebelling population. So if the population rebelled against the monarch, there's always the possibility out there that one of these other communities could use their military to provide aid to those rebels and successfully overthrow the monarch's power. So what they did to solve this, right, uh, was to ban essentially the existence of private armies outside of the control of the state. So just like we talked about earlier. So you can't hire samurais to take on the IRS, right? You can't hire mercenaries to do your bidding inside the United States. Like as an example, it's like all of that is very clearly illegal and that's nothing new. Tilly says this is a key step in the centralization of force in the hands of the state was removing the right of others anywhere within the territory to have their own army. 
military of any kind. Now, clearly, it doesn't make sense really for us to think of like an individual living in the United States having their own military. That was never a thing, but it very clearly was a thing during the you know the early formation of this process that's going on. Thoughts there? So I do want you to kind of answer this question, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate because I'm not really big on this topic to begin with. But regardless, mm-hmm. let's let's play the Second Amendment card. Mm-hmm. These militias, they as you just alluded to, were protected, right? That was the idea of the Second Amendment, this militia to, to deal with um, a tyrannical government potentially getting out of control. Even though that still exists, how has that been undermined as part of this process? Because one could argue that technically it is constitutionally legal, specific against the United States, to create this militia. And we know that there are these things running around, whatever, in Montana or Idaho or mm-hmm. whatever, name some weird place. Um, sorry if you're from there. Maybe I didn't mean weird, but regardless, you get the idea. Like, where? How can we reconcile the existence of these alongside the fact that, to be blunt, they're actually really not going to be very effective if anything does come. They aren't really confronting the IRS, for example, or they're really not confronting the militarized police forces. So they exist. Would we argue, and again, excuse me if I'm being offensive, but I'm going to say it, are these people, are they just LARPing? Is is this just a fantasy to them that, I mean, that's where my mind goes to this, Mm -hmm. that yes, they have very real weapons and very real social organization and hierarchy and you know, anyone watch a, a Vice video on some of the in-depth studies they've done on these groups, that's fine. But, I mean, do they really even qualify as an actual private army or is it just all role play? I don't, that, I, I want you to try and like maybe comment on that or through the lens of Tilly, through the lens of Tilly, not, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So. Yep. So the response is, that, yes, you're right, right? Like militias exist in Montana and Oregon and like wherever else, right? That's fine. But, I think that they really only exist in principle and not in practice. Now, I'm not saying that they're out there doing drills and it's like they're, they're behaving as if they are a military force. However, I challenge them to begin trying to extract taxes from their neighbors and see how quickly they get shut down overnight, right? Or like okay. you said, to challenge the IRS or so forth, right? Start doing any of these things that Tilly is talking about that states do, right? Start on their compound with a buffer zone and then start expanding that outwards and see how far they make it before they are met by the National Guard, right, very quickly. So, yes, the fact that these militias can exist, sure, they're out there, but I would argue that the second they actually try to start operating as their own state, it's game over, right? Until he talks about this here, he says, you know, one of the side effects of the centralization of the use of force within the hands of the state means that the only successful revolution that can ever happen is one that gets sympathy from some portion of the state's military. But that's it, right? That there is no military, no militia is strong, no group of people within a state, regardless of where that is, whether they're militia in Montana or whatever, is strong enough to take on the army of the state. And that's it. And in this case, you wouldn't even get beyond the National Guard, right? Let alone like the entire U.S. military apparatus. Right. right. As Jim Jeffrey says, they'd be bringing guns to a drone fight. Right. Exactly. So I guess that's my answer, right? Yeah, militias can exist, but the second they start trying to militia eating, then it's game over, right? They don't actually get to exist anymore. So it goes back to what I was saying. They're just RPing right there out in the woods. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, of course, like 
I would have weakened like the malicious fantasy of like you know revolution in the U.S. and whatever. Like I, I get why they exist, but I think that they have delusions of effectiveness, right? Or sure, like you know, let's say it's the dystopian, like the U.S. military is disbanded because the state collapses. Like cool, then they would actually be right. Then it would be a fight for. Then it would be the state, the war making. Right, and who would end up with the next centralization of violence? They think it would be them, right, or whatever. That's fine, uh, whatever. Uh, the banning of private armies is what we were just talking about. Also, keep in mind at the time, right, they would also employ many of the, you know, let's say governments at the time. It's questionable when I want to start using the term government in history, but anyways, the governments at the time would hire foreign mercenaries to do their bidding in the war-making process, right? They also stopped doing that completely, right? They all, everything that they were doing, they started uh, doing themselves in-house, essentially, right? Because the foreign mercenaries also were always a threat. They could potentially at any time, you know, use their skills and their numbers to threaten the government. So, yeah, ban private armies. The expansion of state armies, clearly, we've already been alluding to this one, right? Uh, this required, you know, as the state is expanding, clearly the army must be getting bigger to support the new territory and the new buffer zones and to continue, continue the expansion. And this requires more and more and more extraction, like Jared said, this vicious cycle. And so one of the keys here, go ahead. No, 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 no. I want, I, you, I want you to go with your key before I, I, I chime in. One of the keys here is that, you know, if you have a set territory, the amount of resources you can extract from that territory only goes so far. It will only support so much expansion. So this is also when we start to see the incurring of debt by governments who are set yeah. on expansion, right? So if you can incur debt and extract more resources than are physically available in your territory, then you can expand essentially beyond your means, right? And this is what develops the, let's call it favorable relationships, right? Between the economic elite of a society and the rulers, the controllers of the state who required more resources than they had access to, right? So the availability of debt to states uh, allowed them to expand beyond what they ordinarily would be able to. And this is really the vicious cycle that Jared was talking about earlier. The vicious cycle that, you know, it expands the ruler's power and also expands the economic power of the wealthy elite. Right, because as the expansion is taking place, they're the ones that are funding the expansion. And so they're getting incredibly rich off of the war making. And the controllers of the state are becoming more and more and more powerful as they are enclosing more and more territory to become under their control. Thoughts? To oversimplify this, back what I was talking about, the vicious cycle, even going back to some of the ancient states that I briefly referenced earlier. The idea that one has a standing army, i.e. an army that only exists to be an army, i.e. an external enforcer, is this idea that you need resources for essentially an entire population and obviously its infrastructure of people that are non-producers. And that requires extraction. So what I'm saying by that is in an ancient society, maybe everyone does a little bit of everything. Maybe there's some farmers, maybe there's some hunters, maybe there's some gatherers, maybe whatever it is, but you also serve the role of protecting, right? It's not a standing army. You don't just like your whole reason for existence is not fighting, right? You have to do a bunch of other things and maybe you only fight during certain seasons. And, and a lot of the ancient world worked this way. But once we get to the point where states become quote unquote stable enough to have 
individuals who serve no other purpose but to externally enforce, well, they're no longer producers. So to basically carry their weight, their job has to be extraction. If you're not expanding, you're contracting in that case, right? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. So yes, whatever you go out and plunder from other places or extract from other places, like that's essentially your reason for existence in a productive society. And that's one of the points that I think a lot of, of people miss. Standing armies, in an, the existence of standing armies in and of themselves must justify their existence by extracting resources one way or another. And the way they've been trained to do so is through violence. Yeah, they create an incredible economic burden on the state, right? And on the population of the state merely by existing because they require, until he actually does quantitative analysis here, like he has numbers, I forget the numbers, right? But it's like, you know, an army this size required at this time, right? A million pounds of food or whatever the numbers were. It says like, he does the analysis of like economically how this worked, right? The amount of extraction that was required to support these kinds, these massive standing armies like you said, are focused solely on protection and then uh, expansion. Well, and that goes to the whole idea of debt and who has to take on that debt. Well, in a modern post-enlightenment era, that debt, of course, is then spread out across all of us, the citizens, i.e. taxation, and we, of course, are forced to, to pay that debt if we're not in an expansionist society. So again, if we pick on where much of our audience is from here in the United States, you have obviously the most bloated military in human history in terms of like expense and size and scale and so on and so forth. I, I forget what the data is, but, but it's, it, we spend more on that than, than what is it? The next 10 to 12 countries combined. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all know the, the, the data behind this. Well, what's the rationale behind that? What is this rationalization? How do we justify this? Well, part of it is what we talked about with military industrial complexes. It, 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 the idea is that it's going to expand and it's going to extract resources in various places around the world or control political situations so that they can gain influence to different markets. All of this kind of comes together. But when that's not happening, what what rationalizes the existence and why don't we necessarily ask those questions? Well, it comes back to the next topic I think you're going to go into. We ask too many questions, i.e. we start to criticize. We have to deal with internal enforcement. Yep. So the next step is the creation of internal enforcers, right? And this is the police very clearly. So once territories and populations grew large enough, it became impossible for the army, the state's army, to handle both internal enforcements of its own population and external protection and expansion of the territory. So the military had to be bifurcated into two, right? Essentially specialization of labor, division of labor here, where one part of it you know, became the police and handled internal enforcement, and the other part continued to do what it was doing in state expansion. Now, I want to frame this in a way that I think is kind of interesting, because we talked about, Jared even used this term earlier, right, the militarization of the police, where now we see police with, you know, military gear, right? Um, Tilly's theory, you know, says that it's actually really the opposite, if we look historically, that it was from the military came the police, right? That they've actually always been militarized. We're just seeing it now manifest itself in specific gear, but that ideologically the police has always been a military organization that had its roots in war, right? I can see that. War on your own people, but I can see it. Yeah, exactly. And the final thing is, this is where we can get into the Second Amendment, is the disarming of citizens, right? So think back to these times where you know, local territories had their own smaller standing armies and so forth. I get, let me take that back. They wouldn't really be standing armies at that point. They would be what Jared was talking about, where, like, you're a farmer and you do protection, right? Depending on when we're talking about historically. But anyways, let's say the citizens would have been armed, 
right, at the very least. So if the state's project is to centralize and monopolize the use of violence and force, then they have to disarm their citizens, right? So this is a quote from Tilly. He says, coupled with the continued buildup of the state's armed forces, the disarmament of civilians enormously increased the ratio of coercive means in state hands to those at the disposal of domestic rivals or opponents of those currently holding state power. As a result, it has become almost impossible for a dissident faction to seize power over a Western state without the active collaboration of some segments of the state's own armed forces. Now, I want to frame this in a in what I think is a unique way as well, because you were just talking about you know how bloated the, the United States military is, uh, especially you know relative to other countries, etc. I want to you know ask people to think about if they've ever wondered why this is necessary. And so we go into like you said a few you know economic reasons and so forth. Um, but I want to ask you the question because until he talks about how right like every European country now like its citizens are essentially quote unquote disarmed right you can have weapons for hunting and stuff but like no one has an AR-15 in any you know modern European country as an example. Ask yourself if the U.S. military must be so large because its citizens are still armed. So the U.S. military must have a massive amount of troops and must have you know like Jared said drones it must have you know, outrageous technological, uh, I mean, technology for killing, let's just call it what it is, because it never disarmed its citizens. And so the gap is still there between like the citizens in Europe that have hunting, you know, rifles and so forth and their militaries and the citizens of the U.S. and the U.S. military. But that's because the U.S. military is so incredibly massive relative to the other militaries of the world. So, yes the United States has a second amendment uh, and you are allowed to keep arms, right? But the U.S. military has become so incredibly massive and bloated and technologically advanced that any of the arms that you have in your possession mean absolutely nothing to it, that it has still succeeded in monopolizing and centralizing the use of violence in its hands, even though you still maintain some ownership uh, over tools of violence. Right. <clears throat> well, there's obviously internal limitations there, which is a great debate. Um, I mm -hmm. want to be, I guess, unequivocally clear. I am not a big pro Second Amendment guy. I don't do the weapon thing. I don't think it's I, I, whatever. I have my own feelings on this. But what I will say from that side of the argument um, is that that's 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 part of the debate. Why is the military or the police allowed to have these much more powerful weapons? But we, the citizens, are not. And that's part of the argument that they're making. And I, I, we joke in class, but it's it's a real question. If I have the means it, and, and I'm willing to get licensed, why can't I fly an Apache with Hellfire missiles on it? Um, for example, I, I mean, I think the reasons are obvious and, 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 and so on and so forth. But that, that gets back to this idea that you were talking about, even though the citizens themselves are, quote unquote, armed here in the United States more so than in other places, there's still a massive gap between what they are are armed with and what in this case the armed forces are armed with and it, it 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 it's it's intentionally done that way so it's almost like in this case the arming of the citizens um or what they're allowed to keep based on 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 the second amendment and then the limitations placed usually state state by state on those um weapons 
that's done intentionally, but it's also done intentionally that they're allowed to still have a few things to kind of make them feel. It's about feeling, feeling like they have some sort of agency and autonomy in how their lives are going to go. And again, this is not even taking into account all of the various sociological uh, studies that have revealed the problems of an armed populace. That That's for another episode that's not related to what we're talking about. We dig into those, um, or we may dig into those in the future. But regardless, I think that's, that's the part that I think is interesting. A... I'll simplify what I just said. In the US, yes, citizens are armed, but there's still a massive gap between what they're armed with and what the state is armed with. Secondly, what little they're armed with is actually perhaps strategically allowing them um, to basically blow off steam, right? Like they're allowed to feel like they have this agency on autonomy, but they don't. That's exactly what I was going to say. You put it perfectly there at the end, right? You know, people could read Tilly's theories and say, well, Western European states have successfully monopolize and centralize the use of force because they did successfully disarm their citizens. But, you know, we in the United States, we still have the right to arms. So the U.S. hasn't really fully encompassed that centralization and that monopoly on the, you know, the use of legitimate force. Tilly would argue, you know, just because you are able to own certain things, you know, that's purely an illusion, like you said, that you have some agency and that you have the control uh, you know, of violence, that it's, it's still decentralized because you're able to own small arms, right? It's an illusion. And it doesn't even take into account the ideological congruency between like some of these, like, again, free men, militias and whatnot, and the state discourses. Like, that's the, that's the thing. They're not actually anti-state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that they are very pro state they are very pro, they are very pro uh both internal and external enforcers they're very pro these things these aren't like anarchists out there or socialists mm-hmm. out there like these are very pro state i.e right leaning institutions that are usually the most armed which is a great irony so <laughs> i mean i guess let's give credit to the socialists and anarchists some there are sects of each that you know are armed and believe in those things but yeah, you're right. The vast majority of them are right leaning, which, like you said, is a great. Is very pro state. Is very pro state. One hundred percent. Yeah, pro authority, pro state, and so yeah. forth. So that, in a nutshell, is Tilly's theory. Tilly's theory for how states are essentially the equivalent of organized crime. Right? They are racketeers, and it's this relationship, uh, this reflexive relationship between war making, extraction, state making, and protection. And really, that lends us to understand the origins of the modern nation state. Any final thoughts? I don't. I, uh, I, I agree with much of it. It's interesting that he wrote this in what was the year on that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the year is. We've talked about this before on our own little theories and setting up our courses and stuff like that. And it just reveals to us that there were people much smarter than us before we were thinking. So because, uh, again, a lot of it is reminiscent of stuff that we we were talking about before thinking we had an original thought, but perhaps our thoughts were not as original as we thought. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you want to consider supporting us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolutionideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. Later.